Welcome everyone uh, to this ATARC webinar on the new GSA Digital Worker Credentialing Handbook. Uh, today's webinar is presented uh, by the uh, ATARC RPA Working Group. Our guest speakers uh, today are uh, Daria Medved, Deputy Director, Merging Technology Policy at GSA, and Ken Myers, Cyber Policy and Strategy Planner at GSA. My name is Bill Bunce, and I'm the Director of Federal Sales at Automation Anywhere. The first question you might be asking yourself is, what is a digital worker? A digital worker is simply software designed to emulate a human uh, by performing activities and tasks using automation or AI-based skills. Um, what I've observed uh, is that many organizations across public sector uh, specifically are reluctant to jump into the automation space due to concerns about security and given the sensitivity of government data, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the question I get most often is, you know, how do we provide uh, an intelligent automation or, you know, how can we be assured uh, that bots or automations won't be roaming the network touching systems that they're not su supposed to. Uh, the answer to that question is to guarantee, in order to guarantee security, uh, is that you need to be able to audit what the automation is doing on the network. And step number one of auditing an automation is obviously credentialing that automation so that you can identify it on the, on the network and track it. Uh, with that, uh, I'm sure we'll learn a lot more from today's presentation. And so let me turn it over to Daria and Ken uh, and they can take us through the new handbook. Daria. Thank you very much. Ken, would you like to share our slides? Yes, I will. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for <clears throat> inviting us to uh, present to you guys today. Uh, as Bill had mentioned, um, my name is Daria Medved. I'm part of the Emerging Tech Division, and along with Ken Myers, who's part of the Identity Assurance and Trusted Access Division, we are within the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA. And um, <clears throat> we're here to talk about uh, digital identity. All right, next slide. So first of all, uh, can we get a poll question up? Um, are you using automated technologies today? We'll take a, a moment for everyone to give us an answer here. And then how do we see the results here? Somewhere? Oh, there we go. Ah, very interesting results. Um, it seems like the majority of us are using automated technologies, um, hopefully some sort of AI. Um, and we have seen that there is a huge growth of AI in government um, today uh, and in the future. At least, and these statistics are probably already outdated, but at least 45% of uh, federal agencies have experimented with AI tools. Um, Non-defense AI research and development is doubling uh, this fiscal year for the government <clears throat> and agencies increasingly rely on the digital workforce. We're seeing this in a, a number of areas. Um, so with all of this, we uh, have recognized that there's a new type of worker um, that really uh, needs to have a consistent way to be credentialed. And this is, next slide. Next slide, please. Yeah, there we go. The digital worker. <clears throat> um, so the, the, the digital worker, um, 
um, has, it's, it's becoming a lot more uh, increasing that we are seeing digital workers, not necessarily taking the place of corporeal workers, uh, but at least on the networks, uh, we need to be able to recognize whether uh, something is a digital worker or a normal human, because uh, as Bill had mentioned, <clears throat> um, digital workers don't act the same way on networks. And so they can trigger a lot of the red flags um, <clears throat> in security uh, that say that, oh, you guys are getting hacked, when in reality, it's just a digital worker. So there needs to be a way to recognize these digital workers in our networks. Uh, and what we found uh, in researching how digital workers are currently credentialed within federal fire, uh, firewalls is that uh, they're not really recognizable. There's not too much consistency across the board. Um, and there does need to be uh, a way to be able to tell digital workers apart on federal networks. Uh, and not only because of OMB memo 1917, but just as a best practice. So what we did is we uh, put together an interagency workshop. Uh, we interviewed a, a bunch of agencies on how they're currently using digital workers and how they're credentialing digital workers within their agencies. And then we analyzed all of the gaps <clears throat> and the challenges, both from a policy perspective and from an implementation perspective. And we put together a set of recommendations uh, from the emerging tech division um, that then can very nicely took over to the Identity Assurance and Trusted Access Division and created a digital playbook for us. So Ken, on to you. Great, thanks Daria. Hey, good afternoon everyone. Ken Myers, really excited to jump in here and uh, talk about digital worker playbook. Uh, we have another polling question. Uh, Kirsten, you mind throwing that polling question up? Great, thanks. So this next polling question, what guidance do you use to credential your digital workers? So we have agency or company developed guidance, vendor recommended practices. That's you know why we're here today to learn about it, to learn about your playbook, which I'm pretty excited about. And uh, the last one is nothing. So which, uh, what type of guidance are you using today? And the results are in agency or company developed guidance. That's great. It's great to see that you have uh, guidance of your own that you're working with. So <clears throat> uh, Daria mentioned there is a policy recommendation paper. And from that paper, uh, we developed the digital worker playbook. So within OMB memo 1917, it calls on agencies to manage the digital identity of automated technologies, such as robotic process automation, RPA tools, and artificial intelligence. So one of the main questions we get, well, digital worker, isn't that a non-person entity? Isn't that the same thing as MPE? Not really, and it kind of depends on uh, how your agency defines MPE. But if you look at OMB memo 1917, it kind of clearly differentiates devices from non-person entities from automated technologies. And automated technologies is the scope of this digital worker playbook. Uh, so within the playbook and the next couple of slides, you'll see there's three distinct steps. It's determining the impact and creating an identity by assigning a sponsor and custodian. And then the last step is provisioning and governing that digital identity. It's a, a cyclic, <clears throat> you go through a cycle. Um, and then where and when? So I wish I could say that we're publicly posting the playbook today, 
Unfortunately, it's uh, still in a communications and review, but it will be publicly posted. And when it does get publicly posted, uh, we'll share it. We'll share it with the community here. Uh, so jumping uh, right into the steps. Uh, I mentioned that there's three steps in establishing identities. So the first step is determining the impact. So that's a risk assessment. Uh, within that, uh, you have your ICAM governance structure. So uh, for anyone that's not familiar with the FICAM architecture, uh, OMB memo 1917, or maybe FICAM program management, we outline something called a um, an ICAM governance structure, which is actually uh, a cross-functional team of not just IT professionals, but also human resources, everyone that has a part within an identity uh, component within an agency. And that's making sure that that digital worker is also included in that overall governance structure. Uh, also within that first step is obtaining an impact score. Uh, so that score is pretty much kind of like uh, an impact level if you're familiar with uh, doing um, uh, 830 risk assessments, right? Low, medium, moderate, low, moderate, high, that type of thing. So that's also, we're talking about uh, within a digital worker is that you arrive at an impact score. And that was kind of influences the next steps uh, when you're creating your identity. So pretty much overall, right? The steps, it's a structured process to establish an identity. Um, Daria mentioned uh, the recommendations paper. Within that, interviewing agencies, a lot of, well, we found that a lot of agencies were using human-based identity processes uh, to credential a digital worker. And it doesn't always, uh, doesn't always work like that. There's, there's some things that are specific to a human that don't correlate to a digital identity. Uh, so jumping right in, I'm gonna go in a little deep here on step one. Uh, I think we have another polling question here. That polling question is, do you conduct a risk assessment before credentialing a digital worker? Yes or no? So let's see. Um, so, uh, uh, oh good. So 67% say yes, that's, that's a great sign. And that kind of, it kind of aligns with uh, what we have in the playbook here. Um, so I mentioned this ICAM oversight. So it's really important that you establish governance over all identities within your agency, not just human um, and not just digital, but all of them, that all of them go through some type of process uh, when you're establishing that identity. Uh, so the impact score, and this actually, this is a six factor impact score. Uh, the, important, the important pieces of the impact scores really touches on uh, what differentiates a digital worker from a human worker, right? If you think about a digital worker, whether that's a robotic process, uh, automation like a bot, a chat bot or something else, um, there's the ability for them to be supervised or unsupervised. There's the ability for them to use information and then arrive at a decision. And then what happens with that decision? Does other actions take place from that decision? So there's a lot there's a lot of benefits, but there's also uh, a little bit of risk uh, when you're using uh, a digital worker. And so that's, that's, the main, that's the main focus of this impact score is understanding the, the impact, uh, whether good or bad, uh, of that digital worker. So from that score, then you arrive at an actual level and that level will align with follow-on activities in the next two steps. 
So that level, the level that we use, the methodology is actually within the playbook to understand uh, what was it, what's encompassed within each level. Uh, it's actually based on this special publication, 830, uh, for risk management. Uh, so the main takeaway from this, like I'd mentioned, all workers, human and digital, should oversight from their ICAM governance structure. So when they use the impact evaluation matrix to determine the level of potential adverse impact. Um, if you have any more questions or uh, about the ICAM governance structure, you can actually look. We have a uh, a guide, an ICAM program management guide that's available at PM, that's papamike.idmanagement.gov. And that kind of explains what an ICAM governance structure is, what, what's a government body, what uh, offices within your agency should be included within this government body. And it also goes into what a, uh, an ICAM program management office is. So the second main takeaway here is uh, not every digital identity requires, or not, I'm sorry, not every digital worker requires a digital identity. Um, especially if it's at the low impact level, um, you, may, you may not need to establish its own identity, but really it goes back to your own agency uh, guidance and processes. So if you do require to have every identity within your agency, Sure. Sorry, I was swaying back and forth. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> so if, if you have an agency policy that says that all workers, human and digital, must have an identity, uh, then you should follow your own agency processes. But uh, by no means uh, are we recommending that every digital identity should have a worker. Uh, I mentioned the six factors uh, in the impact score. Uh, and that factors in whether digital worker is autonomous, um, does it provide recommendation, is it supervised or unsupervised? Um, and usually uh, you can expect a higher risk is it, if it is uh, unsupervised. So the, uh, the main, I mean, the, main, the other main takeaway from this is unidentified digital worker is different than a human worker. Um, there are certain aspects or certain attributes from identity perspective that agencies use with a human worker that don't necessarily apply to a digital worker. For example, location uh, or uh, a device serial number or uh, sometimes agencies tie identities to specific uh, uh, devices like laptops or desktops, stuff like that. But those are the types of things that don't necessarily apply with a digital worker. Now move to the next slide here. So we have another polling question, polling question number four. So do you assign a human sponsor and a custodian to a digital worker? So this is actually step two within the playbook. Um, and the reason, the main reason why you want to assign sponsors and custodians is that someone is managing that digital worker. So wait a second for the response on that one. And the results are in is yes, both sponsor and a custodian. Wow, that's uh, this is a pretty advanced group here considering uh, following your head and all the wickets here. This is great. So within step two, you're conducting um, a sponsorship process. So within that, uh, you're assigning a sponsor and custodian. So a sponsor is usually an executive. It could be a CISO. It could be 
another executive within the IT or security uh, function of your office, and they're the primary individual that's accountable for that digital worker. Uh, the custodian is more of your day-to-day -day manager of the digital worker. It could be a federal employee, uh, it could be a contractor, but the idea is that uh, the, there's both executive management and then day-to-day -day management of a digital worker. Uh, <clears throat> the second part of step two is actually conducting a validation process. And this actually goes towards a little bit more of the identity governance uh, functions uh, of, a, of a, a life cycle management. So some of those points right there are talking about were access reviews. So access reviews being least privilege. Uh, the idea that you should only have as many privileges, as much access as you need to complete a tax, to complete a task. Uh, so part of that one thing that we found was that uh, due potentially to limitations on agency's identity management system, digital workers were required to be supervised because they had a system account. And that was the only account that could be that a digital worker could use. And due to that, the compensating control is that it required to be supervised. Um, the excess privileges that come with that group or system account um, <clears throat> cause it to be supervised. So an additional governance factor in there is also separation of duties. So does the digital worker have excess privileges that could result in fraud, theft, or other error, errors? Um, in addition, a code review. So how often does a digital worker, how often is their code reviewed? Ethics and bias. Is there an ethics and bias review of the digital worker? So within that ethics and bias review, you know, your agency may not have guidance on, on ethics or, or bias, and there actually isn't any formal guidance out right now um, on how to conduct the ethics or bias review. Um, but you can always work with other agencies within your community of interest um, to, to develop your own set of recommendations before formal guidance uh, is published. Uh, Lastly, within that validation step is a periodic recertification and acknowledgement of the review. So that could happen based on the impact level. It could be a, a six month or one year uh, recertification. But most important, uh, the recommendation is don't set up a, an out of band cycle that causes more work uh, for your security or IT or whoever's responsible for this process. If possible, you should integrate these processes into existing reviews um, and acknowledgement cycles, um, especially if you have an existing identity governance process. If you could integrate these reviews into that process right there. So, uh, so recertification, I had mentioned, it's required more frequently for higher levels of risk, um, as well as ethic, re ethic reviews, uh, ethics and bias reviews also. So why, why is this an important place? So if agencies create an identity, and I mentioned before that they usually follow that same process used for human workers. So the, the main difference there is that, uh, you know, digital workers don't go through, through the same process when you're onboarding a new employee. So this is supposed to mimic that process in a way that's tailored specifically to the digital worker. You know, human worker, we have managers, a digital worker, they now have a sponsor and a custodian. So it's a very, it's very similar, but it's tailored specifically for a digital worker. Um, you know, why is this, well, another bullet of why this is important, so there's a lack of consistency 
across agencies um, and adapting processes to the digital workers. So we tried um, answering that specifically with this, with this process right here. So during, during the agency interviews for the recommendation paper, so our group found agencies were using group and system accounts like I, mentioned, like I had mentioned uh, that led to excessive privileges. So the overall intent of this step is to allow agencies to use unsupervised digital workers by providing that worker with a unique identity uh, that enforces least privilege and separation of duties, which are two key identity management concepts. Uh, so it looks like we got, a, we got a question in the chat. How would sponsorship and custodian status work with citizen developers? So any federal worker can create a bot and run it locally. Um, citizen developer. Uh, so maybe you can, uh, maybe I can come back to that one. If you could clarify what a citizen developer is, I'm not sure if that's uh, just a citizen that's providing development support. But if you can clarify on the citizen developer part, um, and come back and assist with that. Any federal worker. Um, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try my best to answer this one. So how would sponsorship and custodian status work with, with any federal worker? Um, it's possible, Ken, uh, that it comes back to the risk level. Um, you had mm -hmm. mentioned that every digital worker may not require uh, credentialing. If this is a bot that is operating under the authority of that um, citizen developer, um, and so by default, then they become the sponsor, um, potentially. Um, there's there's a movement. Um, I know the Air Force is using a lot of citizen developers where, um, you know, instead of using a centralized um, center of excellence where, you know, automations and AIs are developed in a, in a center of excellence, you have individual employees building bots for their own use and running on their, their, their own machines. Okay, yeah, I see. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Um... So I, I can actually take this one <clears throat> a little bit. Um, uh, so yeah, as Bill did mention, um, and I think we are potentially going to uh, bring this up as well, uh, not every single uh, digital worker requires a credentialing. Um, and, and we do go into that in the playbook as well. Uh, if it's a low uh, adverse impact on a um, system, uh, then they don't need to have a credential unless there's a need for them to have a very specific credential, in which case you would just follow the moderate um, level uh, credentialing process. <clears throat> uh, so for anything that uh, federal workers uh, develop that would fall under the low category, then that would then not necessarily need a credential. However, who actually does the assessment of what falls under uh, the low, moderate, high, or critical categories still needs to fall uh, to the um, ICAM governance structure, uh, which is usually a combination of IT folks as well as like uh, identity folks. <clears throat> uh, and so if they approve um, the use of these bots, the creation of these bots by federal workers, then um, this would still follow uh, the playbook that we have as long as those um, bots are in the low category. Yeah, so I would just, I would just also add on to that. I mean, um, if you're allowing your employees 
or workers to create uh, their own bots. Um, I would I would look towards limiting limiting it somehow based on the type of employee. So if you had, you know not allowing admins or anyone with any type of admin access to maybe be able to create or use a bot using that type of account. Um, uh, like Daria mentioned, if if it does, if a bot does fall, maybe you can create uh, parameters in how employees create bots so it always falls within that low. So in that low, right, you don't necessarily need to assign uh, a sponsor or custodian to everyone. Um, and that's really, that's based on those six factors of, you know, what type of data does the bot access, uh, what type of uh, what is the function of it? Does it have access to internal or external networks? Um, uh, what, are, what are the privileges that the bot needs to perform its duties? So for example, if, like if I was to use a bot to access public information and then spit out a CSV, that could possibly fall within the low and that doesn't need a custodian or even its own separate credential. Um, Within the playbook, we have two use cases that kind of that explain different use cases, and that's actually uh, one of them, where uh, you have a bot that's accessing public information and and not really providing any insight, not accessing anything that's not uh, and your average person could access, and that would fall in the low category, which would not require uh, any of the the validation process or sponsorship process, but that's really up to like an individual agency uh, policy, whether they want to enforce that or not. I believe that answer, hopefully that answered the question. <laughs> so moving on to the, uh, the third step here, we've got one last polling question. Do you assign specific identity attributes that apply only to digital workers? Yes. No, we use the same attributes for both digital and human workers. And no, we do not assign any additional identity attributes to digital workers. So where, where, uh, where, do, you, where do you fall within that, that scope? Yes, no, and no. Yes. This group is on point today, following all the all the recommendations here. So that's great. That's great. Sixty three percent said yes. That's amazing. Uh, so step three. This is really my bread and butter. This is the part that really kind of the fun part is provisioning the identity. Um, so we mentioned, you know, if it's low, if this digital worker falls within that low adverse impact area, it may not require its own identity. Uh, but if your agency does require all digital workers to have an identity. Um, then this would be the recommended approach for that. So this actually encompasses both elements within your identity management system, um, and then also additional data elements that could be an identity governance system, or maybe your own agency uh, customized the process for, for managing identity governance components. <clears throat> so the first one is capturing data elements within your identity management system. So some of the additional or data fields that we recommend uh, using for a digital worker is a Boolean option. Yes or no, this is or is not a digital worker. Uh, assigning a unique user ID uh, that, that could encompass some acronym, maybe DW for digital worker, 
in the user ID so you can uniquely identify just by looking at it. Um, you're including the digital worker sponsor name and custodian name within one of the data fields so that if you were to come across that you're using Active Directory and you were to come across the identity, you could see who the custodian and the sponsor are and maybe contact them if you, they, if you have any specific questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And maybe even a description, you know, uh, have that digital worker profile be a little helpful and describe the purpose of that digital worker. Uh, maybe you have some central repository within your agency where someone can go look at the various digital worker templates that are available um, and then select, be able to select a specific digital worker to help perform a task. Uh, the second step is capture and storing the identity governance elements. So identity governance are all that, all of the, the pieces uh, within that validation process. So it's capturing and storing those somewhere and then using that uh, for recertification and re-acknowledgement on a periodic basis, whether that period is six months or one year, uh, so that it aligns with your agency process. Um, so some of the, some of the additional uh, elements that would be captured within the identity government system, uh, it could be the adverse impact level. Uh, it could also include maybe IP ranges that that digital worker should only uh, be able to access. Uh, the dates, the dates of those ethics and bias reviews, the code reviews, um, and also the recertification. So within that periodic basis, the custodian, uh, the sponsor and custodian should be recertifying uh, the purpose and function of that digital worker just to make sure that it hasn't uh, drifted outside of its uh, normal operating procedures. Uh, so it looks like we have a uh, question in here. So can you elaborate on how a digital worker account is differentiated from a service account? Both have potential to run automations and perform interactions in various systems. Um, uh, so it really, it really depends um, on what identity management system you're using uh, because they could, while they could look the same, uh, from an identity management perspective, uh, really the the importance of uh, uniquely identifying a digital worker from other types of accounts um, is pretty important. So, Daria, does something specific around differentiating between types of accounts come up in any of the uh, agency interviews? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that we did notice is that with the service accounts, uh, they don't quite have the um, same fields uh, as um, with uh, what we're, we're what we're hoping to have with a digital worker account um, and that service account still either needs to be run through uh, somebody else. Uh, or through an admin account. Whereas what we're trying to propose is that digital worker accounts should be uh, much more equivalent to a normal worker and not necessarily a service account that just kind of runs in the background. We're not trying to get rid of service accounts. This would be in addition to service accounts, if that makes sense. Great, thanks, Daria. So there's one more, one more question in here. So to Cliff's point, when would it be acceptable to have a digital worker with a critical risk level 
as well as the ability to analyze, develop solutions, and implement said solution without human intervention. So can you provide an example? And I would, I would just say the, the risk level and um, the risk level is really which within the playbook we're calling an adverse impact level. Uh, the adverse impact level hopefully shouldn't hinder the purpose of your digital worker, but it's to provide compensating controls and specific identity components um, to lower uh, to lower the, the potential uh, fraud risk and abuse that that digital worker may may have access to based on using like current current uh, uh, identity and digital worker practices. Um, yeah, ahead, and, and for this, I, I think I can add um, just as an example, for instance, um, a, a digital worker that would have a critical risk level. If you think about, for instance, uh, air traffic control, um, an AI system does make sense in order to um, put into air traffic control. That would be at a critical level. Uh, it's, you know, a potential deaths across the board. Um, that is not something we're trying to prevent from uh, implementing. We are just trying to say that if you do want to uh, go in that direction, uh, let's just make sure that we have the right uh, identity uh, for this bot uh, or for this AI, um, as well as um, the right controls to ensure that there's validations and certifications uh, that this bot is monitored. Great. All right, we got one one more question. So ethics and bias are relevant to AI design and use, but what is the relevance to how the AI is credentialed? And I believe I can take that one as well. <clears throat> um, so for the uh, bias, when we are talking about bias, we're actually talking about specifically the mathematical bias. And uh, what we have here as uh, kind of like what we propose for code reviews, we propose that um, the ethics and mathematical bias of the AI design do need to be reevaluated at certain points. Um, normally this would happen before it would go into production, but then also uh, anytime there is a uh, either uh, for high or critical a periodic uh, yearly or every six months review, as well as if there's any uh, huge uh, updates to the functionality of that AI. So it's kind of like grouping together an ethics review of what the AI does, as well as a mathematical bias to the underlying um, data going into the AI, uh, especially for machine learning, uh, in addition to a code review that should be fairly standard practice for most folks out there. Great. Thanks, Daria. <laughs> and I would also compare it to, uh, you know, one of, one of the best practices just in general for identity management uh, and access control is a periodic review of uh, access types. <clears throat> and so, I mean, specific to the, the ethics and bias review, uh, if, if there is a drift, it could impact its level of access. Um, if the scope of that uh, digital worker changes and that level of access also needs to change with it, um, that's part, it's part of that governance review to make sure that it's, you're still enforcing least privilege on all of your workers um, also. 
So the main takeaways from step three, so data elements for monitoring and tracking digital workers um, are currently tailored to human workers, right? There's this kind of theme, theme across all the playbooks is that using your human worker uh, identity lifecycle may not fit your digital workers. So you want to tailor a specific process. You want to tailor your digital worker identity management to the type of worker that it is. Um, and the second takeaway, so there's a lack of consistency across agencies and identity attributes for digital workers. And so we're hoping, we're hoping that these recommendations will provide that consistent process um, to realize the benefit of a digital workforce um, when you're, uh, you know, when you're looking at IT modernization um, <clears throat> and automation that you, know, you can, you can implement new technologies and not, um, and still apply a risk management process to it. All right, so closing, closing thoughts, closing thoughts. Uh, so I had mentioned that when, when our playbook is ready to be published, uh, I can share the link. It is gonna be published most likely on idmanagement.gov. Um, you know, we covered the three steps. Number step one, determining the impact, conducting that risk assessment, uh, using those six criteria. Um, the step two, which is creating a sponsorship and custodian process to put governance over your digital worker. Uh, and step three is provisioning that identity. So you're identifying, uh, uniquely identifying digital workers um, and, then, and then using specific identity attributes to both uh, provision it securely and also manage and govern all identities, human and digital, uh, within, within your agencies. Uh, Daria, you got any closing thoughts? Uh, I think you said it all. Thank you, Ken. Um, open to any kind of questions you guys have. Um, anything that we can get into details more about. Uh, I'm sure once you guys see the playbook, a lot of your questions will be a uh, answered, but unfortunately can't share it with you. Uh, at this time. So happy to answer any questions that we can. It's coming soon. Um, Ken and Daria, if I could just go ahead and ask a, uh, a live question here. So in your interview process uh, with input uh, for the playbook, um, did folks share with you some of the biggest challenges they have around credentialing? Um, was it simply, you know, uh, lack of guidance, Ken, as you pointed out, lack of consistency in, in guidance and so on, or were there other challenges that um, folks are seeing? Uh, a lot of folks um, that I see are just getting into this, so understanding, you know, what challenges they might run into uh, in this front uh, would be helpful. Um, so there, there definitely was uh, some lack of guidance um, and not so much consistency. Um, I think it was more so that every agency uh, didn't want to start from scratch on figuring out how to do this work uh, to separate digital workers from um, regular corporal uh, workers. Um, the, honestly, the, the big thing when we were doing all of our interviews uh, was that there was a, a huge kind of, I guess, mental barrier uh, for a lot of folks uh, on going from an attended to an unattended digital worker. And honestly, in all of the work that we've done um, 
and, and you'll see this in, in our recommendations as well, uh, that leap is actually very, very minor compared to some of the other factors that really need to be assessed uh, more so about what data does this digital worker have access to and what other systems um, does this digital worker have access to. So, you know, how much damage can this digital worker actually do? Uh, whether attended or unattended, uh, it can still do a greater, a great amount of damage. Um, and that was not a small, uh, a, a big enough factor um, to really uh, push it over from, you know, a low to a moderate or moderate to critical. Are you concerned that there's currently a lack of um, oversight, I guess I would use, on attended automation from that point of view? Um, if you'd asked me this question a year ago, I would say yes. Um, but we, out, we have seen a lot of agencies, not a lot, but a number of agencies really pushing for the unattended model and going towards unattended and becoming more comfortable with it. Uh, so there is progress in that area. and it's we'll see where it goes from here so long as they document the risk um as you yes, pointed out exactly right the risk assessment well great looks like we have a question that came in yeah it looks like uh so there's a question for you bill so to supplement this incredible playbook are there any additional resources from the private sector that you find valuable when it comes to making credentialing for digital workers approachable yeah i know that um um, you know, a lot of private sector organizations uh, are coming out with, um, certainly there's tools within the platforms uh, that allow you uh, to audit um, what automations are doing or what bots are doing, whether they're attended or unattended. You know, I strongly recommend uh, that you use, um, um, you know, what we call uh, from Automation Anywhere, which is a control room. Uh, that is monitoring what bots are doing so you can audit it on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, not only that the tool allows you to audit it, that you're actually leveraging that data uh, as well. Um, so um, I recommend uh, using those tools. Great. Well, I have a quick question, <laughs> a quick question for you, Bill. Sure. Uh, so based on our outline of, of the playbook, I mean, where does this fall in within the groups, uh, I guess, uh, like a combination of, of interest area or if it's come up before, like is identity management like a topic uh, within this project team? Has it come up before? What kind of, um, I guess, discussions have you had around this area? Yeah, um, I, I, I reached out to you guys as soon as I heard about the playbook um, because it is such a hot topic. Uh, what I would say is uh, the number one question is what are people actually using, you know, automation for? What are, what are they doing? What are the use cases? Uh, and what we're seeing uh, now is uh, that now that we're approximately two, you know, maybe three years into using uh, bots and automation, um, we're seeing organizations move to more complex automations. Um, you know, the low hanging fruit, um, the simple tasks, um, a lot of organizations uh, who first put their toe in the water in this space um, saw great success 
huge savings of labor hours and ultimately dollar savings, tax dollar savings. Uh, and so now what's interesting is they're getting pressure from management up above to say, what else can we apply this to? What else can we do? Uh, and as soon as you begin to push the boundaries of what you're looking at doing with automation, security becomes the number one issue. And uh, as I mentioned in my intro, um, you know, step number one of looking at security is how are we credentialing these bots? Um, you know, doing a, uh, a detailed risk assessment upfront uh, before you, um, you know, apply for the credentials for those bots. I found uh, today's presentation really interesting. Um, the topic around uh, there is a difference between a non-person entity and a digital worker. Um, that's, I think it's important that people understand that. I, I don't think that that has been widely publicized. Uh, and then I'm looking forward to seeing the details in the playbook where um, we can, you know, identify what a what a appropriate um, risk assessment looks like uh, and then you know procedures for getting it approved and and so on obviously that would be different agency to agency but I'm sure your playbook addresses that yeah definitely I mean that was one of the I would say consistent comments that we received back on the playbook was you know why are we creating this new category called the digital worker when Right. My agency just calls that an MPE. Right. Um, my, my background uh, is a little bit more on the public key infrastructure side and uh, where uh, from a public key infrastructure perspective, MPE is really servers, devices, like some type of hardware that you want to put a certificate on. Um, I think what MPE is kind of in, in the eye of the beholder maybe within the agency they want to categorize digital worker as MPE, maybe a special category as MPE. I mean, it's, I would say it's really up to the individual agency. Um, but if you look at purposes, like what, what is the purpose of this, right? I think automated technologies have a pretty distinct purpose than, than a server, but uh, it's up to the agency to decide uh, what, what, words, what words they want to use uh, when calling something. Agreed. A server isn't going to roam the network and touch multiple systems. It it has a different purpose. Right. right. Yeah. I see Cliff. Cliff had a question. Don't uh, leave it up to the agency and need consistency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, uh, and that's that's part of what we're trying to do is help uh, do that, uh, provide that consistency across agencies. But at the same time, you know, this guidance isn't a policy. We're not you know, dictating what agency should and shouldn't do. So if within your agency, you have a policy that says if you're either a human or a non-person entity, then you know, that, that's your own agency. If you don't and you're looking for guidance, by all means, uh, use, use our, uh, our playbook as that, as that recommendation for you. And Kathleen, I see you asked the question, um, what was the product uh, that I mentioned uh, that I called Control Room? Uh, Control Room uh, is part of the Automation Anywhere uh, RPA platform or automation platform. Um, so if you're interested in, uh, in more about that, uh, happy to uh, answer any questions you've got. Feel free to reach out to me. 
All right, I think we're up against our time. I really appreciate uh, Ken and Daria, you uh, joining uh, today. Um, this has been super helpful. As soon as uh, the playbook is out, um, Kirsten, I'm sure we'll go ahead and share it on the ATARC um, site uh, in, in the um, RPA uh, working group um, links as well. Um, so thanks again. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Daria.